This is an SBC Media Partners production. Swung on, hit high and deep. Right field. Good 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 it is Phillies fans, these are your glove stories with Murph. Let's check out Greg Murphy. Murph, you got a special guest, huh? Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Glove Stories with Murph, presented by the Bet Parks Casino and Sportsbook app, along with Shine Vintage Sports and Phillies Nation. We are happy to have you with us today, and we are really happy to have today's guest. Uh, I'm excited to talk to him. So many great stories over the years uh, that he will share with us today, we hope. And uh, it's my pleasure to welcome in the former general manager of the Philadelphia Phillies, Ed Wade, as our guest today. Ed, it's been, uh, well, it's been a couple of weeks in the making, but it is great to have you here with us today. I'm happy to be here. Glad, glad to have a chance to talk some baseball. Absolutely. You know, and I want to start uh, kind of big picture because, I, you know, you and I have gotten to know each other over the years and, and I've always been interested in your career and the way it unfolded. And I think one of the reasons that uh, you were so successful in your career, uh, building up from being an intern with the Philadelphia Phillies right on through to general managerships, um, is your ability to lead. And, and I wanted to talk to you off the, right off the bat about your philosophy in terms of leadership, because I, I do think it's something that at your core is very important to you. Am I, is that a fair statement? Yeah, it really is. First of all, you know, having the opportunity to work for people like, uh, like Dallas Green and, and Bill Giles, Larry Shank, Paul Owens, Tal Smith in Houston, you know, I, I think it really benefited me that there were a lot of people that took a, a strong interest in my career from the very beginning when, when Larry brought me in as a PR intern in 1977. Um, I'm a big believer in in you, what I would call the three A's. You you give people the the opportunity to uh, you know ha- have accountability for their actions, uh, make decisions, have autonomy. Uh, oftentimes, you see even at the minor league level, you'll set up or you'll see a circumstance that could set up where there there isn't any ability for that minor league manager or, or minor league administrator to have some autonomy and authority in his area. Uh, understanding that he's going to be held accountable for those decisions. And I really felt that was important from top to bottom from a leadership standpoint. First of all, you try to surround your people, surround yourself with strong people, uh, like-minded, but willing to express their own opinions, uh, know that you're not right all the time, and then give those people the the ability to go out and and do what they're capable of doing. And and I know we'll probably talk about what culminated in 2008, but what culminated in 2008 would not have happened if it now for, were, were people like Mike Arbuckle involved and, you know, Mike being an outstanding scouting director who I then also gave the, the responsibility of being the player development director. Uh, Mike's strength was that he, he believed in his scouts and he believed in the philosophy, not only that he was preaching at that level, but also the overarching plan that we had to try to quote unquote, get good and stay good. And it was the ability to have people like that throughout the organization uh, who were like-minded, uh, who were willing to ex- express their opinions, had great experience, and then for me to be smart enough to listen and, and know know when somebody was right and and also be able to push back at times because time and circumstance also plays a big part in the decisions that you make. So, again, very fortunate to start 250 an hour, all the tasty cakes I could <laughs> eat as, a, as an intern for Larry Shank in 1977. And the way it advanced and, and, and turned out to be a 41-year career, which I'm, I'm very, very proud of. 
Yeah, sometimes you have to sit back and just pinch yourself when you think about it in those terms. Uh, we, we've, we've all been very lucky to to share an experience of a, of a career in baseball. Uh, before I get off the leadership, I, I wonder, do you feel as though leadership is something that can be learned? Is it something that's ingrained in certain folks and, uh, and, and you're kind of bored with it? Where's your thought process on that? No, I, I think I think it certainly is a, a, a learned skill. Um, you know, car- you know, pe- people's makeup is you know, everyone's makeup is different. Uh, I always considered myself to be a quiet, sort of shy person. Mm-hmm. Uh, but given the opportunity to to grasp things from other people and understand and watch the way that they operated in their rules, uh, made me feel that I, I had a chance, given the opportunity to to advance and to do other things. You know, I, I went to after the uh, the Philly experience in 1977. I got a full time my first full time job as uh, as a PR guy, PR assistant with the Astros, and then Tal Smith made me the youngest PR director in baseball at the time. And there were there were always people that were willing to give me a chance, and and uh, I had the determination to you know to to put my best foot forward, try to use common sense, which I think is you start talking about. Uh, you know that the attributes and the, and the skill set that you need for jobs. I'm not sure that a lot of the things that we end up using and and achieve success with are being taught at the collegiate level at this at this point in time. You know, there's no uh, there, there are no classes in common sense, and I do think it plays a big part. And 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 I do think a big dose of humility is important too. You need to understand that when the things are going going great, there there are a lot of different people that made that happen. But you also have to understand if if you want that position of authority. Uh, the buck stops with you and you've got to be prepared to, to, to absorb the, uh, you know, the negativity that might come along with it. And you might have to also face, as I did three times, the, uh, the fact that, that your services are no longer needed. And, uh, but if you go into your job thinking, I'm going to put my best foot forward every day, uh, I, my, my self-interest does not, does not prevail over the interest of the organization. I think if, if you follow that, that path, you're more apt to make right, right decisions and you're more apt to do things that are in the best interest of the ball club and ownership and the fans and everybody else that's involved at every level of of your organization. Yeah. And, and obviously that, uh, that whole philosophy that you just talked about comes with decades of experience for sure. But let's go back to, uh, to a young Ed Wade who uh, uh, arrived in Philadelphia from uh, Carbondale, Pennsylvania, you came down to Philly and uh, were a Temple University baseball player um, early in your career. Uh, at that time, was the idea of a career in baseball, was that first and foremost on your mind? No, I was I was a journalism major and and uh, and, and not a very good player. <laughs> Playing for Skip Wilson was was that a great, great, <laughs> great 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 uh, great experience. Playing for Skip, but but also was a non scholarship athlete. So, uh, you know, being being a bench player and trying to keep up with my grades as a journalism major, I finally at, at the end of the fall season of my junior year, I got involved in the Temple internship program and uh, had a. Uh, internship with the Philadelphia Bulletin, uh, Associated Press. I did a summer internship in Williamsport where I actually wrote a story where Larry Anderson pitching for the Williamsport Tomahawks predicted he pitched a shutout in his next start, which he didn't. <laughs> but I still have the clipping to prove that he, uh, that he at least predicted that. But all these, intern- all these internships led to eventually uh, Larry Shank, uh, PR director of the Phillies, offered me a one-game press pass when I came back to school uh, for my fall semester of my junior year, for my, I'm sorry, my fall semester of my senior year. 
And uh, that ended up allowing me to serve as a press runner for them uh, for the 1976 NLCS. And then I came back to the back, came back to school uh, for my last semester in late January of 77. And I had a note to call Larry Shank and I called Larry and he offered me the internship there. And, uh, you know, it, it was all the menial jobs. Again, it was $2.50 an hour, which was minimum wage at the time. Uh, when the game started, I get $12 a game to work up in the press box. Uh, one, one fortunate circumstance or event that occurred, I stand at the fourth floor elevator at the vet and one of the hot pants girls walked up and, uh, and uh, we've been married now for 40, <laughs> almost 42 years. So one of the residual benefits of, of bumping into Miss New Jersey VFW and, uh, and have her uh, be uh, nearsighted enough to marry me. So, you know, one thing led to another than the full-time job with the Astros and from the Astros to the Pirates as a PR guy. And then I wanted to get involved on the baseball side because I, I again, watching other people and having a chance to work with, with people on that, that in that area, it really was something I was interested in. And Tal Smith, who had been the president and general manager of the Astros when I was a PR guy there, had started his own consulting company uh, representing teams in salary arbitration and, and uh, franchise evaluations and things of that nature. And Tal offered me a position to go to work for him. And it really laid the foundation then, I think, for Lee Thomas, uh, for me to land on Lee's radar screen when he was GM and in Philadelphia and and obviously the the re relationships that I built up with Dave Montgomery and Bill Giles and, and Larry, I think they all spoke on my behalf when Lee was looking for an assistant and uh, ended up in uh, December of 97, I guess it was. No, it was it was earlier than that, 89, uh, that uh, that Lee offered me the position to be his assistant. And uh, the, the amount of responsibility he gave me after that led led to unfortunately him him being terminated, but for me to get my opportunity to uh, to step in as GM. Yeah. And, and, you know, and that's the way baseball works. That's the, well, it's the way the world works to be quite honest. Sometimes, as you mentioned, uh, you know, you do your job, you do it to the best of your ability, but sometimes they move on. Sometimes you're the guy that, that moves into that next role. Um, we've all been able to experience both sides of that, the good and the bad. And, and we'll, we'll talk about that. Let me take you back a little bit to uh, your days, uh, your early days with the Phillies. And then as you transition, you then went to Pittsburgh after that and, and then to Houston, um, um, but uh, back in those days, we think of public relations nowadays as press releases and social media and things along those lines. But back then, you guys were really kind of more the, the keepers of the numbers. And and if, if I'm not mistaken, that was really one of your strengths, right? The, the ability to kind of see the game from a numerical standpoint, um, maybe before we all talked about it. You know, it's talked about all the time now, but before it was not, right? Yeah, well, when I when I got the full time job with Houston, Tal was the general manager at the time, and Tal was very much statistically oriented. I mean, he he went back and told stories about when it was the old punch card days, when you know laptops weren't around and they were they were keeping records there at, at that point in time to evaluate players. Uh, so yeah, a big part. You were the statistician if you were if you were the PR guy or the PR department. That that was it. You know, you had you had some some guys some some assistant producers or whatever at NBC or, or, or the TV networks who'd come in and they do their own stuff statistically, but everybody else really was relying on the PR guys for that type of information. So, you know, the, the, the three years I spent with the Astros and then the five years with the pirates, that was, that was one of the primary roles of, of the job. You know, and along the way we had, you know, we had that great 1980 LCS in LCS when I was the PR director in Houston and played the Phillies in the, in what, what I still think is, is the greatest LCS in the history of baseball also experienced J.R. Richard you know, suffering a stroke and everything that was associated with trying to communicate that from a 
from a public relations standpoint. And then actually lived through the Pittsburgh drug trials in 1985, where an all-star team came through Pittsburgh for uh, for very wrong reasons. And uh, um, But yeah, exposed to a lot of different things, uh, a lot of different roles, trying to uh, trying to do everything you could to assist the media and sort of put the organization's first foot forward, best foot forward. Um, but certain things have certainly have changed from the standpoint of the analytics and and so many people involved in so many different ways it really changed the character of the game, in my opinion, unfortunately. Yeah, it, it really has. And yeah, we, we and we can get into that maybe in a, in a little <laughs> bit. But uh, all right, let me take you. So so the, the career is moving on and you have your sights set on on a job in on the baseball side of things, the baseball operations sides of things. And I've heard you say before that in your in your mind, the idea of being an assistant general manager was was really the goal at that point. Um, and uh, you get that you come back to Philadelphia, you join Lee Thomas uh, in the front office. And uh, within a couple of years, you are in that role. You are the assistant general manager. Um, but so much happened. It, I think I think your original title was assistant to the general manager, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I've, I've got like 43 different business cards. If I go back and find them all. <laughs> you know, it's it's just a word here and a word there it changes everything. But um, so much uh, th- that was when this franchise really, uh, st- I think, started to change. I mean, obviously, the, the great run in 93 was a lot of fun. And, and you were in the room for a lot of uh, of that uh, happening. How much of that early on in your career helped shape what you were able to do later as a general manager? Well, all, all, all of what you just said is absolutely true. Um, I think, I again, key hires, I think I think Lee Thomas was a key hire. Uh, remember, uh, Bill, Bill Giles had, had uh, taken over as as the, the primary owner, principal owner of the club. Uh, with his partnership group, and and Bill was Bill was basically working as sort of the general manager at the time, and there were some missteps along the way. Uh, but I really think that Lee's background, uh, not only as a player but as a player development guy in St. Louis, was a huge step forward. Uh, and and Lee's aggressive personality in, in in going after guys, putting big deals together. I mean, he hit the ground running when you start th- talking about. Terry Mulholland and John Cruck and and the deals that he made right off the bat, the deal, you know, Jason Grimsley for Kurt Schilling and things of that nature. Lee, I, I learned a ton from Lee. And and I think one of the big steps in my career was uh, the fact that I had asked Lee uh, for the last two years when he was general manager, if I could go out and see some teams from a scouting standpoint in spring training. And one of the teams that I had a chance to see for two years were the Astros, which then led to me sort of browbeating Lee in advance of the expansion draft to, to not walk away from Bobby Abreu uh, because there were a lot of other Quentin McCracken and other names came up, but, but it was, it was really Lee's Lee's ability to bring people in. He's the guy that brought Mike Arbuckle and I can't say enough about Mike uh, and, and to really, really focus on what we had to do from a player development standpoint. And, and I tried to absorb all those things at the same time, you know, we had Paul Owens on the sidelines, retired, but I'd make a point, like if I was going to Batavia to see the Batavia club for, for four or five days, I'd have Pope right up with me. I'd have to keep the windows open because he smoked all the time, but I also <laughs> kept my mouth shut. I kept the windows open and my mouth shut because Paul Paul would tell stories about what it was like in his era. And, they're, you know, they're, they're, we're talking generations apart, but the reality was I was smart enough to understand that there were nuggets in there of things that he was talking about from the 19 late 50s through the through the mid 70s. Those great teams that he put together that really resonated, even though there, there was this generational gap. So, I, I again, you know, 
egotistically speaking, I think I was smart enough to shut up and pay attention to people like like Lee and Dallas and Pope and John Vukovic and Jimmy Fergosi, all these guys that were baseball lifers who, for whatever reason, were willing to sit down and, and sort of sort of talk me through what what their perspective of baseball was. And I tried to grasp that and given the opportunity to then implement it the best way that I knew how. Yeah. As side note, some of the names that you just mentioned and, and those conversations, uh, they didn't have them with just you. You know, so many of of the folks that have come through the Phillies organization credit those men that you just talked about uh, in helping shape their own baseball careers. I think about Chris Wheeler uh, and how much he learned from those guys as well uh, on his way to being, a, in my opinion, a Hall of Fame broadcaster. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's wonderful that those guys were able to pass those life lessons and baseball lessons on to you guys. And add to your point, uh, you guys were smart enough to, to sit back and listen and, and learn from them. Um, well, that, that's one of the things, just uh, what, just to follow up that, one of the things, one of the other phrases is esprit de corps. That was Pope's thing all the time. And, and, and from that standpoint, you know, he and Dallas and those guys, they, they believed in, you know, there was, there was, there was always a hierarchy, uh, but there wasn't because they, they, they wanted to talk baseball to baseball guys. So if you were again, if you were smart enough to sit in the coach's room three hours before a game and, you know, there's some some joking back and forth. But but you, you pick up a lot of stuff that you can implement going forward. But but again, it was those guys not living in a in a, in a you know, crystal palace on the 15th floor or walking into the office in the morning and shutting their door and flipping their computers on. They were there to talk baseball. And they were there to pick other people's brains and try to make decisions that, that made sense for everybody and being willing to take the hits from the media. Those were all the types of things that I learned along the way that that uh, given the opportunity. And again, I getting back to the, the assistant GM versus the GM uh, job thing. You have to remember when I first started, uh, non former player GMs were a rarity. Yeah, so, you know, to, to be a to be a, a sixth, seventh outfielder on the Temple baseball team for two and a half years uh, sort of paled in comparison to what these guys had gone through in the real wars. And that was that was that was a big uh, a big criterion uh, for a long time. You had exceptions again, like Tao Smith in Houston, who's going into their Hall of Fame here in a couple of months. There were guys like that, but I, I guess I just saw the ceiling probably as being a bit lower than 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 the rarefied air of where a guy from Carbondale, Pennsylvania, doesn't normally breathe. <laughs> but you never know what's going to happen, and that's the you never beauty. know. That's who uh, we had Joaquin Andohar, one of our pitchers in uh, in Houston. He he said one time, "There's one word in American that says it all." You never know. <laughs> one yes, word. One word. Right. I love it. Um, all right. Uh, you mentioned Bobby Abreu. So I want to I want to close the door and I want to hear uh, one of your sale, sales techniques to Lee Thomas, because you had seen Bobby a couple of times and you felt very strongly that he was a guy that could help the organization. Tough sell to Lee. I mean, how did that all play out? Well, we, you know, we had both both expansion clubs were interested in stocker. Uh, so that was that was the, the starting point. We knew we knew that we had an opportunity to do something. So, you know, Lee was talking to Bob Gebhardt, Colorado and Chuck Lamar with Tampa. And Bob would Bob would say they they weren't supposed to. They could not hand you the unprotected lists, but you could have conversations. And and I remember when Lee was giving different names to Chuck Lamar, he would bring up there was a big camp for Quentin McCrack and the outfielder. Um, and there were, there were other names being mentioned and, and 
the sort of the code that Chuck would use is, I think I can get my hands on that guy if Lee mentioned a name. So when Bobby Abreu's name came up, that was the response that, that Chuck had given him. So I was really the only guy, Jimmy Stewart, I think had seen, Jimmy, one of our major league scouts had seen Bobby Abreu very briefly. So I was really the only guy in the room that, that had some type of, of more expansive history with Bobby. And for as G assistant GM, Lee and I spent a lot of one-on-one -on -one time together. And I can just remember saying, Lee, don't walk past this guy. Don't walk past this guy. I don't know what the circumstances is, why, why Houston wouldn't protect him. They did, they did have quality outfielders there coming through and, and you are limited to who you, who you can protect. But I just sort of browbeat him. And, um, you know, fortunately, uh, you know, I think Bobby's one of the most underrated Phillies in the history of, of the franchise. Um, I thought he would get more consideration, frankly, for the Hall of Fame. Yeah. But it was all about what he was capable of doing, and, and it was Lee's willingness to listen to everybody in the room, and then trying to make the right decision based on, you know, sort of a hunch he had with the with the history that I was. You know, I, I also did. I also had some some little bit of background Houston information that I could provide as well from the standpoint of makeup. So that was that was helpful too. So glad it worked out the way that it did for for uh, for the Phillies for a very long time. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and obviously uh for you as well because you know those kinds of decisions, those kinds of conversations um ultimately help build the uh help build the resume and and then when an opportunity arises and and they decide to move on from Lee Thomas there it is for you and and you get the opportunity the opportunity of a lifetime really to be the general manager of the Philadelphia Phillies uh, an overwhelming responsibility especially in a city like Philly who uh lives and dies with their sports teams and and the Phils are no different um when you when you first took over uh, what was the overriding emotion? I mean, or, or were there many? I guess there probably were many. What, what were your were well, thoughts? It, the, the, the first emotion was disappointment for Lee. Uh, I can remember being being at home and, and uh, the phone rang was Dave Montgomery on a, a Sunday evening. And he said, can you come out? Can you come out to the house? And I said to Roxanne, I said, I, I, I think something's going to happen here. So I drove out. Uh, we live in South Jersey, drove over to Philadelphia, went, went to went to David's house and talked for a while and he said he was going to make the change and and would I be interested in the job and I said yes and he said okay well I, that's the direction that I want to go he said but I'm I'm probably not going to get to it until sometime on Tuesday now this is Sunday and I've got to go into the office you know and work with Lee knowing that this is coming yeah. and then he talked to uh talked I believe he talked to uh to Lee on that Tuesday so that that was tough so my first reaction was this is a guy uh you know, one of five or six really, really big people in my career um, that is that's now being dismissed. I went through, I saw the same thing happen in Houston when we lost the playoffs to the Phillies in 1980 and Lee, and Tal Smith got fired after the end, at the end of the season. So I, I, I lived through that part. So that was the first emotion. Um, there were probably some frightful moments going into it uh, because it's a big, it, it's a big job, but, you know, sort of dismissed that because I, I knew I had I had I, at, at the upper level, I had Bill Giles and 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 Dave Montgomery in my corner. Um, and then from the from the structure of the organization, I knew we had really solid, good people in position to, to move forward, whether again, it was Mike Arbuckle or Del Lunch, who was the farm director at the time. Susan Ingersoll was my assistant. Uh, when I actually went without an assistant GM for the entire 98 season because I had approached Ruben Amaro about doing it, but he wanted to play one more year. So sort of bit the bullet and we all sort of filled in the gaps of not having an assistant GM until until 
Ruben decided, well, we'd already, all of us had already decided they couldn't play anymore. <laughs> and, uh, and when Ed took the job at that point in time, but you know, all those emotions, it was a big responsibility because uh, we knew we, we, we had to rebuild in a city where you could not even use that word. I mean, right. forget about the tanking stuff that goes on today. You know, you couldn't tell people in Philadelphia that you were going to rebuild that, that was, that was not part of the, that was not part of the lexicon. So that was, that was out but we made it clear that we wanted to get good and stay good, that we wanted to rebuild the system. We wanted to have we wanted to reestablish what, again, going back to the Owens and Dallas Green days, we wanted to reestablish the Phillies way so that our players knew when they came into the organization, whether it was in the Gulf Coast Rookie League or Batavia, they knew the message that they were going to get all the way up through the system to the big leagues was consistent. So a kid didn't get off the have to get off a plane after being promoted and say, I don't know how to do cutoffs and relays. I don't know how to do this and that because it was taught from the very beginning. And it was that, and it was from a scouting standpoint, knowing that we weren't going to walk away from high school players because they were untested or whatever. We were going to, we, we, Mike's, Mike's position was and, and marching orders were that we were going to take the best athletes available. We weren't going to, we weren't going to be, oh, are you a college draft guy? Are you a high school draft guy? No, we were best player available. And if it took the high school player a little bit longer to get there, and maybe you'd have a few more missteps along the way, but the ceiling is much higher. We'd much prefer to go after a Cole Hamels who had some arm issues or go after, go after Jimmy Rollins, who was undersized as high school players, because we thought that that was in the best interest of, of the long-term plan to get good and stay good. And, and fortunately it happened. It happened a little bit, slowly for me personally but it was the direction that we took that uh, that that pat was able to come in and move pieces around and make some big deals to get it over the over the finish line yeah i would imagine and i, I was covering the team at that time um so i i, I do remember but um yeah it was a tough sell for a while because folks in in the town you know had been kind of beaten down for so long with, with some bad teams and and even around baseball and i would imagine even inside the clubhouse sometimes not everybody believed that the message that was being put out there was was actually the direction the franchise was headed in retrospect it was but how hard of a sell was it well it was and the other thing was that we were perpetually trying to explain the economics of philadelphia phillies baseball at veteran stadium you know we clearly acknowledged we were the sixth or seventh largest market in baseball we were 22nd or 23rd in payroll um, and that was hard for people to get their, their get their heads around why why was this there, this disparity? But the lease at Veterans Stadium, and I, I can't get into all the details. I had I had other things that I was responsible for, but we couldn't we couldn't participate at a level that was commensurate with the size of the of the of the, of the populace. Uh, but we made the promise all along the way: when we get into a new ballpark, things are going to change. Uh, but it, it rang hollow. It probably rang. I, I can't tell you for sure because I'm a country music fan, but I think it probably rang hollow on sports talk radio. I know <laughs> it did uh, because other people were more than willing to tell me that it does. Um, and you're right. In the clubhouse, it wasn't it wasn't universally grasped. We, we would have loved to advance to move forward with Kurt Schilling as our number one starter for the, the decade that he covered in Arizona and Boston and things that he did along the way. We'd have loved having to having a franchise third baseman for X number of years in in Scott Rowland at third base, but they they didn't subscribe to what we were talking about, and they didn't they didn't buy into it. And and you know, at that point, you make decisions. That both both I, I I I in retrospect, we should have let both players play through the end of their contracts and go out as free agents versus 
the deals that we were because we were sort of we were sort of bottlenecked as to what we could or couldn't do from a trade standpoint because people knew the circumstances. People with other clubs knew the circumstances. But yeah, there were there 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 were there were hard sells inside the building, outside the building, uh, and outside the industry uh, where where people were just weren't willing to grasp it. And we we got our brain speed out a few of those years until we finally started to turn it. And it's, you know, it's 12 over 500, 10 over 500, 10 over 500. And unfortunately, we're playing in the division with the Braves. We're playing a division with the with the Marlins at one time. We're, we're spending a lot of money for one season to build a club to get to the World Series and then take it apart. So we were always close, but never never got the chance to be that that club that we, we wanted to be, which, again, fortunately, they did as you progressed into, obviously, 2008 and even a few years behind, beyond that. It was like really... It was the guys that Pat was able to bring in and then Ruben afterwards that, that finished finished it off. But to me, the core nucleus were those guys that that, that we saw where people were saying, you know, why, why are, you know, who are these guys? Who's this Rollins guy? Why, why are they committing to Rollins and Howard early in their careers, so on and so forth? Well, both guys have MV, MVP trophies somewhere in their house because we were patient with them coming through the system and we were, we were willing to live with them you know, particularly Ryan Howard, some of the deficiencies that Ryan Howard had defensively, big hole in the swing. People question, well, why did you why did you draft Jim Tomey or why just why did you sign Jim Tomey when you had Ryan Howard? Well, he was still a developing player at that time. He still had a big hole inside, was still, you know, still had a lot of polish and, and even still need more polish defensively at first base. But time and circumstance, as it did to tell us to take the slow, steady method early on, time and circumstance dictated as we got closer now let's go out and try and get a Millwood. Let's go out and try and get a Tommy to try to advance the cause going forward without stunning the growth of those younger players. Yeah. Patience is such a big part of what, uh, what professional sports is all about. And not, and it, not uh, an easy thing to have. Either. Not, no, not at it. Maybe one of the most difficult things I would imagine um, is to be, you know, I, me, I sit back as a fan and I'm certainly not patient. You know, you want it to happen now to watch it slowly develop and, and believe in your core that it's going to develop. I mean, you're talking about guys like Myers and, and Hamels and Utley and Howard, uh, Chooch, Madsen, all these guys on your watch that, that, that had to come through the system and come through um, slowly. But uh, but you having that that forethought that, you know, this is going to happen. And and so Jim Tomey, obviously a huge signing. And I know, um, again, from listening to other interviews, uh, you did not think that that was going to happen. I remember the excitement in the city comes in, the construction workers, all of that stuff. But you weren't convinced that Jim Tomey was going to be a Philly until your office phone rang and, and they told you he was, I, I, I thought, he, I thought, I thought you know, through the whole thing that he was an Indian for life. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, Mark Shapiro was the general manager there. And we had, you know, we couldn't talk about the player because, because he's a free agent. It's, you know, he had tampering gets involved, but, but I knew that they were being very aggressive on trying to keep Jim there. Um, and, you know, we just, we just kept, a steady, steady pace at it. You know, Ruben and I had gone to the general manager's meeting at general manager's meeting. I flew to Seattle to meet with Jamie Moyer at like midnight because he was doing one of his 75,000 charity things. And he really wanted to come. Uh, we flew to Atlanta, uh, to Arizona, met with David Bell and talked to him. But obviously the guy that was going to legitimize what we had promised all along was going to be Jim Tomey. When we go and get into a new ballpark, this is what the circumstances are going to be. And we were we were projecting that Jim was going to be that guy before the ballpark was built. And really when, 
Yeah, I'm sitting in my office and, and my phone rang and Pat Rooney, uh, who was uh, who was Jim's agent, called and said he's coming. And I, I, I did not know. You know. I didn't know what to say, frankly. And I sat there in my office all by myself. And I just did sort of what I'm doing right now, like, really? And picked up the phone and called uh, called Dave Montgomery in, in his office. And I said, you know, Pat Rooney just called and we got him. And then I told Ruben and Susan and the other people in the office about what was going on. But yeah, it was, I mean, it, it, for, for something, we really worked, really worked hard to try to get these guys. We felt that were the next step guys, but there was no question that the, that the, the gemstone of this whole thing was going to be Tommy if we could get him. And I really thought he was going to be an Indian for life. I mean, it was just, just one of those circumstances that for whatever reason, he, he, uh, he believed what we were saying. And, you know, it didn't hurt having Charlie working for us <laughs> at the yeah. time because I had brought Charlie in as a special assistant um, because not, not so much, I'm, I'm not going to deny that part of bringing Charlie in was designed towards making it more attractive to Jim. But the other part of it was we had Ruben, Ruben Amar and a couple of other people in the organization who had played for Charlie and knew Charlie and his personality and everything. So even bringing him in as a special assistant at that point in time was sort of a no brainer with the added benefit being that, you know, he could be the turning point, the thing that, that the linchpin that brings, that brings Tommy under, you know, under our watch. And fortunately it worked out that way. Yeah. So Charlie leads to, it, it in some ways leads to Jim Tomey. And in some ways that leads to the run, uh, you know, the new ballpark comes in and everything that you and David Montgomery and, and Bill Giles had kind of envisioned kind of started to slot into, in this uh, place. And um, I mean, being a fan in the, in the city at the time, being a reporter in the city at the time, you can remember the, just the absolute excitement that was surrounding the Phillies franchise. And it, you know, obviously, and you mentioned it, it took a couple of more years and, and, and perhaps if it had happened a little bit sooner, things change a little bit for, for your own tenure. But when you think about that moment and what it did for this franchise, um, really kind of setting it on a path for a decade of, of success, uh, it's kind of remarkable that, uh, that, you know, one decision, one phone call that you get, and, I, you know, you obviously, uh, in thinking about it, get a little emotional about it because it was such a significant moment in, in this franchise history. Yeah, it was, and, 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 and it, it, it continued to advance the, the, the upward path, the upward trajectory that we wanted without disassembling what we had planned for the, for the long run, you know, and obviously after uh, it's not a secret after we signed Tommy, then, then the Howard family wanted us to trade, trade yeah. Ryan and they, they changed agents uh, to Larry Reynolds, thinking that Larry could get Howard Reynolds brother trying to convince me to, to trade. We weren't going to trade. We still considered Ryan to be a developing player. We didn't know how it was going to work out. We certainly didn't know that Tommy was going to get hurt in 05 and and Ryan was going to come up and be the be the rookie of the year and so on and so forth. But but we the, the moves that we were making still allowed us to continue to concentrate on not only the the, the long term, but also the smaller pieces. You know, one of the guys that, that we didn't draft and sign, but, you know, Shane Victorino came during that period of time, too. And, and I tell people the story about Shane. You know, we took him in the rule five draft and and maybe a lot of people that if anybody actually watches your podcast or the, my podcast, the people, people, uh, the rule five draft, if you take a player in the major league portion of the rule five draft at the winter meetings, you have to keep him in the big leagues for the entire season. 
or offer him back to the club you took him from, which in this case was Los Angeles, offer him back for 50 for 50 percent of the of the uh, of the, the rule five price, which I think was like fifty thousand dollars. If that club passes. No, first of all, you've got to run him through waivers. So any other team can take him, but they have to keep him in the big leagues for the whole year. Uh, if he gets through waivers, then you offer him back to the other club. And the other club in this case said, no, we don't want him back. So we cleared waivers. Nobody wanted him back. We sent him to Scranton and Dickie Knowles, uh, who is our employee assistance professional, obviously great Phillies uh, pitcher. He went up to Scranton and Shane came up to him and said, Dickie, I'm, I'm attention deficit disorder. Uh, I've been diagnosed, but I've never been medicated. And Dickie took him and got him medicated. And we would see in that spring training before all this took place, when Shane was with us, we'd see him have a, a great day offensively and mess a ball up in the field, get picked off first, so on and so forth. And once that meeting with Dickie took place, Shane, all five tools came together and the flying Hawaiian was created. So it was, it was those sort of pure happenstance kind of things. It goes back, again, I, I digress, but uh, we talked about Lee Thomas before and how Lee was open-minded to things. We were at a Rule 5 draft when Lee was general manager. I was assistant, and I forget the year it was, but we had two we had two roster spots open, and we had some names. So we took Sil Camposano, an outfielder from the Toronto Blue Jays, with the first pick. So now it goes around the room. You've got all the clubs. Most clubs at that point in time, they're passing. They don't have roster space or they don't see anybody attractive. And it's about three steps before you get back to us for our second option or our second chance to pick somebody. And Lee goes, do we have anybody else on the list that we like? I said, well, we've got this third baseman from San Diego uh, that some of our guys like. Um, he said, well, let's go ahead and take him. So I stood up and said, the Phillies with their with their second pick, take take third baseman Dave Hollins. Yeah. <laughs> so, that worked out all right. <laughs> no, you got any more space? Yeah, we got one more space. You got any more room? You got any more names? Yeah, we got this Hollins guy. Okay, let's take Hollins. So, wow. God bless Sil Camposano, but I think we did better with our second pick. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, Camposano known more for Harry being able to to emphasize the name, but uh, <laughs> Dave Hollins certainly um, uh, legendary in in Philly's lure uh, and one of one of the real good guys as well. Uh, it, it, it's so fascinating to to listen to to how those kinds of things. Uh, play out. You use the word happenstance, uh, but it's it's a little bit more than just happenstance. It's it's being aware of what's happening around and reacting uh, and having the good people around you, you know, that you had mentioned and allowing them to to go out and and make those decisions and do their jobs to help the the players out there on the field. And all of that kind of uh, comes together. I, I know we don't have a whole lot more time with you, but I, I do want to ask you a couple specific questions. Um, I know you've been asked this before, but I don't know that I've ever heard the answer. Were you ever close to trading Chase Utley? Were the, the I mean, I'm sure no. conversations were had, but were you ever close? No. It was uh, the the only the only I guess there there were other inquiries. The only serious one was from was from Billy Bean uh, when when he expressed interest in him was talking about Barry Zito, um, and it it didn't didn't work for us again. Time and circumstance, it didn't it didn't make sense for us. Even though we had you know we had Placido Polanco and and we had some alternatives at second base and we we're trying to figure out where where Chase really fit in the whole scheme of things could he play someplace other than second and we were test firing him different places no I never really it didn't make sense to move a guy like that it didn't make sense to try to up the ante with the with with the Zito where we were again time and circumstance it didn't it didn't yeah. play right for us no no we never got there 
Yeah. You know, I remember those days and the rumors would would be flying around and, and you know, no one knew really what Chase was at that point. Uh, but again, it, it's those those little things, those little decisions. Don't trade Ryan Howard. Don't trade Chase Utley. It, it's the moves you don't make sometimes that really end up being the, the best moves. Yeah, we you know we we made some. There were some haywire moves along the way. We you know the the, the infamous Andy Ashby bringing Ashby <laughs> to be our number two starter in, in November, and then in December Schilling had to have surgery, which makes Andy a number one starter, which he didn't want to be. And then the San Diego trade, you know, all the all the the spare parts, I guess, that were involved in that. Um, but then you know then other things work out well for you. you know, the 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 Billy Wagner trade worked out well for us. Kenny Lofton coming over, and he and Jason Michaels platooning in center field in, in 05 and putting up incredible numbers. I forget what they were, but you got, he had to be aggressive uh, at that point in time. We, we, we couldn't be passive anymore. We, we had to, we had to take advantage of the economics change that took place with the new ballpark. And, and uh, you know, again, I, I, I take pride in the fact that, that, that there was a lot of longevity uh, to the, to, to these guys showing up. Uh, I wish they had gotten there. I wish we'd gotten there sooner from a standpoint of postseason play, but again, self-interest does not prevail. Uh, if if you if you're in it for self-interest and 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 ego satisfaction, it just doesn't it doesn't play very well. So uh, glad it worked out the way that it did, and and I was able to bring our grandkids to yesterday's game. And I call five innings in the box of popcorn. I didn't have to throw anything in the stand. I, I I'll, I'll share this very quickly with you. We're talking, we're talking about patience and things like that. Uh, I'm probably the only. The only Catholic who's ever had his confession heard in the family box at Veterans Stadium because I brought <laughs> I brought Monsignor Cook from our parish here in, in Pittman to a game and he was sitting in the family box and uh, something happened on the field. And at that time, the the GM box was one of the broadcast booths and they put up a piece of uh, opaque plexiglass in so the broadcasters couldn't look in. And something happened on the field. And I went like this and slammed my fist and said something not very nice. And looked out of the corner of my eyes. Monsignor Cook was walking down the steps to the box and then back out. So I had to go down <laughs> to the family box and have, have him hear my confession. <laughs> and then Irish broke. So you know what? Uh, you get you get right on but, it. And, and yes, their patience is involved, but but there are a lot of people who will remind you at one point my nickname was short fuse. <laughs> well, and you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, wrong all with right. You. Before I let you go, and and this is going because I know you and 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 the way you are, uh, you're probably a little uncomfortable. But I want to talk about legacy because I, I know I certainly know that that's not something that you've ever you know approached. Your reasoning has never been legacy. Um, but you know you, you get dismissed. The team continues on. They bring Pat in, as you point out. He makes a couple of uh, really good moves that are able to get them over the top. They win the World Series in 08. They continue on. You head off to Houston. You begin another rebuild. So many of those guys end up winning a World Series uh, in Houston as well. In retrospect. Even even the night the Phils won the World Series, Pat Killick uh, giving you credit, uh, giving you saying this was Ed, Wed, Ed Wade's team that, that was built. I, I would imagine it's not why you do it, but certainly knowing that it's been recognized after the fact uh, has to make you feel pretty good, right? It does. You know, not, nobody likes criticism and, and but, but it's part of the job. You know, people talk about what Pat said. I'm. I've told people this story. I was sound asleep at the time because my, my, my interests were with the Astros at that stage and, and the phone started to buzz and I picked it and I looked at the messages and isn't it great what Pat Gillick had to say about you? And I had no idea what people were talking about. And, uh, but, but, um, 
one of the interesting things, at least to me, one of the interesting things, I mentioned Tal Smith a couple of times on 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 this. A lot of people don't know Tal, uh, but but Tal actually was Pat's mentor as well. Uh, Pat had played in the Astros farm system when I think Tal was farm director at the time, and they had a lifetime they had a lifetime friendship. So uh, for for you know Pat to say something like that about me, uh, I think it meant, meant a lot to Tal as well. Uh, the other interesting thing uh, that Paul Owens used to tell me, and you may know this about Pat Gillick, when Pat was with Toronto as a young general manager, talked about trying to take advantage of other people's experience uh, in spring training. He would ride his bike from Dunedin down to the hotel that the Phillies were staying at, the Fort Harrison Hotel. And he'd sit in the lobby for hours talking to Pope, picking his brain about baseball. Yeah. So you've got this you've got this circle that, you know, it's branched off from time to time and other people come in and come out of it. Uh, but we were fortunate enough in in our eras. And it sounds funny to say that because I don't feel like I'm 66 now, <laughs> but, but this is a different era. Um, in our era, there were those types of communications and those types of relationships that were being built uh, that I think not only uh, benefited those individuals involved, but I think I think it was for the good of the game as well that that uh, a lot of this information. The other, again, speaking very, I'll go very quickly about this. I talked about. The, established reestablishing the Phillies way. Uh, and we talked to everybody in the building, particularly coaches and stuff about what we're going to do. And John Vukovic came into my office one day. Now Vuk had coached for a long time with the Cubs when Dallas was manager there. And he came into my office and he had this stack of papers and he said, Hey, these are the cutoff and relays plays that we used when we were with the Cubs. You might be interested. In it. And I looked, I said, Vuk, this is great because we're going to put this Phillies way book together. So on and so forth. And, and, People probably won't remember this name, but you will. About three weeks later, there's a knock on my door, and Mage McDonald sure. is at my door. Now, Mage had worked for 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 uh, Gene Mock and on the coaching staff, so over. And he walks and he said, "Hey, I understand you're doing this Phillies way thing." And I said, "Yeah." He said, "Well, I've got this stuff that Gene Mock put together when we were together when he was manager here. You might look wa want them." And he gave it to me, and it was the same exact cutoff and replay, literally the same Xerox <laughs> cutoff and relay plays that Vuk had given me. Which was which was pretty cool, but but keep in mind that's what that's what we're talking about. We're talking about good solid funda fundamental baseball under Gene Mock in the in the 60s. Yeah. Gets carried by John Vukovic from the Phillies to the Cubs and comes back to the Phillies. I mean, that's the type of thing. Yeah, you can sit it there. There's a lot of good information on the computer. We talked about it. I was a statistician. There's a lot of good information there. But the but the but the breadth of experience that you can draw upon if you're just open-minded enough to do it. Um, the, yeah, we try, we're, we're trying our best to really change the game. Hopefully there are enough of those John Vukovic to, to Gene Walks, to Dallas Greens, to Paul Owens still around out there that will see us go in the right direction and have the game be the way that it, it really is for our fans. Yeah, I, I could not agree with you more, Ed, on that. The game doesn't change. We change the rules. We change the way the game is played. But the game itself, uh, it, it, it just transcends generation to generation, which is what makes it uh, such a fantastic game. And um, it, that, what a great story. What a great story and a great story to end on. Uh, Ed, it, I knew this would be a pleasure, and it was an absolute pleasure to hear uh, some of these stories. We probably could talk for hours and hours and, and, and keep it going. But um, I really appreciate you taking some time with us. I know you have uh, a busy schedule. You've got the grandkids uh, <laughs> probably running around the house right now. No, uh, they, I get Mondays off. <laughs> oh, Mondays are free. Oh, okay. Yeah. There you go. There you go. That was a perfect time. You get to hang out with me. <laughs> That's right. 
but uh, from, from other people acting childish to us. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I wouldn't have it any other way. That's uh, right. Anyway, a, a real pleasure. Thank you so much for being a part of Glove Stories with Murph. We appreciate it. And I really look forward to seeing you at the ballpark real soon. Same here, Murph. Thank you. All right. Ed Wade is our guest. We'll take a quick time out. And Charlie Manuel and Larry Boa will join us coming up next right here on Glove Stories with Murph. The all-new Bet Parks Casino and Sportsbook app is here for both Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Get in on all the action, whether it's baseball, the basketball and hockey playoffs, golf, all your favorite sports. Download the all-new Bet Parks Casino and Sportsbook app and make your first bet risk-free up to $750. Bet more than the score. Bet on individual player performances for hits, home runs, and strikeouts. Bet innings, first team to score, and more. Bet Parks is the only sportsbook and casino app that I recommend. The Bet Parks Casino and Sportsbook app, where odds, bets, slots, and games all come together in perfect harmony right in your pocket. Sportsbook and all your favorite casino games for real money, all in one amazing app. Live in-game betting lets you bet while you watch the game. Download right now in the App Store, Google Play Store, or at BetParks.com and use my promo code MURPH. Bet Parks is also an official proud betting operator of the PGA Tour. The all-new Bet Parks Casino and Sportsbook app. You must be 21 and in Pennsylvania or New Jersey. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome to This Week in Philly Baseball History, presented by Shive Vintage Sports. This week in 1991, Olympic Stadium in Montreal, a young pitcher named Tommy Green takes the hill against a stacked Expos lineup. 130 pitches later, Green's jubilant teammates stormed the mound as Green became just the eighth pitcher in franchise history to throw a no-hitter. Celebrate Philly sports history with a unique Father's Day gift from Shibe Vintage Sports. Visit them at 13th and Walnut Streets or ShibeSports.com. Phillies Nation is your source for breaking news, original analysis, trade insights, and more. Read today's articles at philliesnation.com. And welcome back to Glove Stories, brought to you by the Bet Parks Casino and Sportsbook Gap, Shive Vintage Sports, and Phillies Nation. And it is the time in the show where we bring in our two Wall of Famers, Larry Boa and Charlie Manuel, are here to talk about, well, all things baseball. But today, guys, we just finished talking with Ed Wade, so we're going to focus in on the executive side of baseball, the general managers, the team presidents, the guys that are making the decisions in the front office, because so often those guys are the ones that set the tone for an organization. Charlie, you've been around the game for a long, long time, and I know you've been around some great executives as well. Uh, tell me, can you remember a time where uh, an executive really set a team uh, on the path for success? I got a, uh, yeah, I got uh one of the, uh, here in Philly, I would say on our on our clubs, I would say Ledge definitely was a, uh, one of those guys. You know, yeah. like he came in and he definitely uh, he did a good job in our bullpen for us. And uh, the year we won the World Series, of course, he was he was uh, he had forty eight straight saves. Uh, so you know, like uh, that's kind of hard to beat. And that uh, I got to say, that was a big move. So but, that was uh, Pat Gillick and Ed Wade, right? They they connected right. for that move, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Thank I, 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 I thank Ed for uh, trading trading uh, uh, <laughs> lids to us, but, and yeah. definitely definitely welcome uh, Gilly getting him. 
you know, I, Ed's been asked about that so many times, and he'll tell you that uh, they really obviously liked Michael Bourne, uh, who they got back in that trade, and obviously Michael became a very good player in the Astros organization. But certainly, Bo, uh, Brad Lidge arriving in Philadelphia uh, at that time was the perfect move for that 08 team, right? Oh, there's no question. I mean, uh, they had they had a great team, and that was basically the icing on the cake. You get a guy, as Charlie well knows, as you well know, uh, when you have a lead going in the ninth inning, the worst thing that happens is you walk off the field with an L. And when you brought in Brad Lidge, I, I know that nothing's 100%, but it was pretty close to 100% that the game was over and you could celebrate with a nice win. But, uh, you know, those things, uh, when you make those trades, it, it, it really highlights it when you win a division or win a World Series. And, of course, them winning the World Series was huge. We had one in Chicago when I got eventually went with Dallas over there that Dallas made in 1983, Rick Sutcliffe, okay. who he came over and, I mean, you talk about solidifying a rotation. And we gave up three or four guys for him. And at the time it happened, everyone said, oh, how can you do that? How can you do that? Well, as you know, the Cubs during that time, they had never won very much. And we, we did win that thing in 83 when we went out to San Diego and eventually got beat after we won the first two games. But that move was huge uh, to bring in. Basically, he was our number one. And if I'm not mistaken, I, I'm not 100 percent sure on this. I think he won the Cy Young that year. I, I'm, I'm not positive, but that was a huge trade that, that Dallas made getting Sutcliffe from the Cleveland Indians. And Charlie, when when a, an executive makes a move like that, when a general manager makes a move like that, and uh, you know you had loaded teams uh, in your time in Cleveland, uh, it, it bolsters not only just the clubhouse, but I would ima imagine the coaching staff as well, because you think to yourself, they're giving us the tools that we need to win, right? Yeah, they're showing you that they uh, uh, that they expect you to win, and also they're they're giving you the players. It's just like I always said about Pat Gillick, you know, like. You know, like a, a Pat is one of those guys, when you talk to him, he's always looking to better your team. It doesn't matter in what way. He gave us Matt Stairs and, you know, like and he, he's the guy that went out and got uh, Dobbs for us. And these guys, although they weren't regular players, they did fill a big role in National League, the way you play the game in the National League. And uh, they were good, uh, big-time valuable off the bench coming off and hitting. And uh, uh, Gillick, uh I always looked at him as a guy. He was always looking to, to help your team. But at the same time, too, I used to grade players one through ten. And Gillick would never give you – he would never give you a seven or eight or something like that. He would always get, at least get you a five or a four or a three. Or, you know, like he would go – if we couldn't get the one guy, he'd go to the number two. If we couldn't get that guy, he'd keep going. And if it got by five, he wouldn't, he wouldn't make the deal. <laughs> and i like that rules. yeah you know? absolutely <laughs> well when you when you were a manager uh how much influence did you have with different general managers did it depend on the the gm and how much uh, input that they allowed you to have yeah i mean I, I was very fortunate with ed wade who i respect unbelievably and i know charlie likes it a lot uh, ed would come down and and he wouldn't always come into the office we talk every day and he goes, how's everything going? And he would say, <clears throat> what do you think you need? You know, especially as we progressed. And, you know, we started winning some games from that time on. And uh, But he was always aware of what was going on in the clubhouse. He had a good pulse on the clubhouse. Uh, he would run stuff by me. And 
he, sometimes we would disagree, Murph, and that's fine. People think that if you disagree, you don't like each other. Right. I think part of baseball is is to be able to share your thoughts with somebody else's thoughts, and then obviously the general manager makes the final call. But the fact that he would come down and say, "What do you got?" or "What do you think?" Uh, that showed that he respected me, and of course. To this day, I respect the heck out of Eddie Wade. I thought he did a tremendous job as a general manager. Then, obviously, when he got let go, I thought he was a great scout also. Very knowledgeable baseball guy, but uh, he was very, very <clears throat> instrumental on turning the Phillies completely around. No doubt about it. And quite frankly, turning the Astros around, too. If you take a look at the right. guy that came into that organization with Ed at the helm, uh, he really kind of set them up for success in the long term as well. Uh, and, and I think people in Philadelphia now understand that, Charlie, you guys probably don't win in 08 had Ed Wade not done what he did in, you know, three and four and five, right? Because Good. there was a time when Ryan Howard asked to be traded and, and Ed said, no, we're, we're going to keep you, keep you in the fold. Um, you know, there was talk of trading Chase Utley. Those things didn't happen. Sometimes it's the move that, that don't happen that help you win. Exactly. I'm going to tell you something. Uh, I agree with everything. What Bo said about Ed Wade, uh, he was very easy for me to communicate with him and uh, our conversations at times, you know, like if I didn't like something, I could, I could tell him he, he would tell me if he didn't like something and and hey look we might argue uh, over to a certain degree but at the same time it seemed like we always worked things out and and when and we agreed on what was best for us for for us going forward and to try to improve our team I think when I think Ed Bo Bo knows even better than I do about when Ed Wade first got his job I wasn't here but at the same time he his mindset was to win here in Philadelphia and and that was his goal and he definitely set out to do that yeah no doubt about it all right before we put a wrap on this segment I want to ask you the flip side of things and I don't know if either of you guys have a story and you don't have to use names but about an executive that maybe just made a complete mess of things and you thought to yourself my goodness, <laughs> I can't wait to, uh, to to have a change of leadership. doesn't have to be a team that you were involved with, but just in baseball in general. Wow, that's a great question. <laughs> I don't want to get you in trouble, but I'm just No, curious. No, I understand that. <laughs> uh, I, I will say that for me, we made a trade when I was a player, and my first comment was it was when we traded Willie Montanez, who was a fan favorite, to the Giants – for Gary Maddox, who I knew absolutely nothing about right. as a player. And we made that trade. And one of the writers came and said, Hey, you guys got Gary Maddox. I said, who'd we give up? And they said, Willie Nez. And I went, that's all we got and to this day. Maddox, when I see it, little did I know Maddox was going to be one of the greatest center fielders ever to play the game of baseball, but, but stuff like that, you know, your initial reaction is you got a guy that's very important in your clubhouse. And now you get rid of him. Uh, and, and, you know, chemistry, as Charlie can attest to this, is very important to clubhouse. And Willie, Willie had that chemistry going for us in our clubhouse when I was a player. But that was a, a, a trade that I, I raised my eyebrows and I look back on it and I go, what a dope I was. Because <laughs> nothing against Willie Martinez, but we got one of the premier center fielders in all of baseball. That's a great story. That's a great story. Uh, Charlie, you, you want to weigh in on that or you want to stay away from that one? Uh, you know what, Murph, I've seen some deals where uh, – uh, some things that we did I didn't like, and uh, and and uh, I don't particularly want to get, get go into that. <laughs> I, 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 I don't want 
I don't want to go into that. You know, like, and I've heard somebody say, well, the, you know, like Bo knows when, uh, it's not like, I don't like the person, but I look, uh, I look at his value of how he's going to help us in it, like in our, in, on our team, in our clubhouse and also performance wise. Yeah. And I've seen, uh, most, mostly my arguments would be pitching. You know, like those were, those are the times that it, when I got in arguments, especially with my ge- general manager, it would be over. It, usually it was about pitching. Right. Right. Opinions. Everybody has one, right? Uh, ultimately, ultimately, the game of baseball, it's the general manager's opinion who matters at the end. But uh, certainly we, we can all question it uh, as we go forward. All right, uh, Charlie and Larry, thanks so much. Uh, we'll check in with you guys again next week right here on Glow Stories, okay? All right, Murph. Thanks, Murph. Welcome to This Week in Philly Baseball History, presented by Shy Vintage Sports. This week in 1991, Olympic Stadium in Montreal, a young pitcher named Tommy Green takes the hill against a stacked Expos lineup. 130 pitches later, Green's jubilant teammates stormed the mound as Green became just the eighth pitcher in franchise history to throw a no-hitter. Celebrate Philly sports history with a unique Father's Day gift from Shy Vintage Sports. Visit them at 13th and Walnut Streets or shybsports.com. The all-new Bet Parks Casino and Sportsbook app is here for both Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Get in on all the action, whether it's baseball, the basketball and hockey playoffs, golf, all your favorite sports. Download the all-new Bet Parks Casino and Sportsbook app and make your first bet risk-free up to $750. Bet more than the score. Bet on individual player performances for hits, home runs, and strikeouts. Bet innings, first team to score, and more. Bet Parks is the only sportsbook and casino app that I recommend. The Bet Parks Casino and Sportsbook app, where odds, bets, slots, and games all come together in perfect harmony right in your pocket. Sportsbook and all your favorite casino games for real money, all in one amazing app. Live in-game betting lets you bet while you watch the game. Download right now in the App Store, Google Play Store, or at BetParks.com and use my promo code MURPH. Bet Parks is also an official proud betting operator of the PGA Tour. The all-new Bet Parks Casino and Sportsbook app. You must be 21 and in Pennsylvania or New Jersey. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Phillies Nation is your source for breaking news, original analysis, trade insights, and more. Read today's articles at philliesnation.com. Glove Stories with Murph is sponsored by the Bet Parks Casino and Sportsbook app, along with Shine Vintage Sports and Phillies Nation, and is a presentation of SBC Media Partners. The engineer for Glove Stories is Chad Evans. Cindy Webster is our marketing and guest relations director, and our executive producer is Roger Haddon. Whether you are watching us on YouTube or downloading the podcast from one of the major podcast providers like Apple, Google, or Spotify, make sure to hit like and subscribe so that we can let you know when a new episode of Glove Stories is available. We'll release new episodes weekly throughout the 2022 Major League Baseball season.